Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So I'm going to read the Bible readings for today. And the first one is from Revelation um, chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. His rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They, they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves, and among the rocks of the mountain. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? All right, um, we are gonna be uh, in Revelation chapter uh, six. We're actually gonna work through to um, uh, the first verse of chapter 8 this morning, so um, we're going to have a Bible reading in two parts. So we've just heard the first, uh, first half, uh, chapter 6, we're going to have a talk about that, there'll be a second reading and we'll talk about that. They won't be equal, um, equal-sized halves, so I'm going to talk much more about this first half than the second half in case that leads anyone to a panic, they're like, where's the second reading and we haven't had it yet, don't worry about it. It's, um, yeah, we're going to fit into the time this morning and um, I uh, do encourage you to have it open and uh, to be thinking with me and just uh, be ready to, um, to hear what challenge and what encouragement actually um, God has for us in these, um, in these chapters. 
Uh, so great to be able to um, great to be able to think through this with you. And uh, I think we're going to need God's help. So let's um, let's begin by praying and asking for that uh, together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your word uh, in its entirety, but we thank you this morning um, for this word, which we've heard read, uh, and which we trust you will use to, uh, to strengthen, encourage, uh, correct, rebuke, train, uh, do everything that you need to do in our lives. And so we invite you to, to do that. Please, by the power of your spirit, um, would you be present with us, helping us to both understand your word, but more importantly, to come to know you more deeply. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, have you ever read a story? Uh, I know some of you might be book readers, not everyone necessarily, but have you ever read a story? Uh, Just imagine you do read books if you don't, and gotten partway through it and thought, why on earth did the author do that? And you get partway into a story, you come to a a moment where it could have gone this way or that, and you think, why on earth did the author pick that direction? If I were writing the story, I would do the opposite. I would do this. Or um, sometimes it's around endings. Like, why did, the, why did the author choose to wrap up the story in that particular way? It just seems confusing or dumb or whatever it is. It, you, it might frustrate you. You can think of a much better way to resolve the situation than the author of the story did. Now, of course, um, because this is, I think, a relatively common experience, there is the phenomenon of fan fiction where people do kind of just write their own uh, side plots, sequels, prequels, um, versions of stories. Uh, You might have come across some of that or even engaged in it yourself, I don't know. But I raise this question because I wonder whether many of us may have felt this way about the way God has written his story of salvation. For example, we might question why, if Jesus has secured victory at the cross, if he's forgiven sins, if he's ushered in the possibility of resurrection life, then what's the deal with the bit of the story that we find ourselves in right now? Where things can be very, very hard and very, very unpleasant. Couldn't God have written it differently? I think that's something like we should feel as we turn the page from Revelation 4 and 5, the chapters we were looking at last week, uh, into the chapter we've just read today. Chapters 4 and 5, last week, they are the majestic, central, controlling vision, I think, of this whole book of Revelation. In them, we have John uh, caught up into this heavenly throne room, this vision of a heavenly throne room, given this vision of God uh, on his throne in power and majesty with all the commotion of everyone worshipping him and declaring his holiness and worth. Uh, John sees, in the context of this, uh, John sees this one who is identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah, who rules as God's Messiah, but who is also alongside being this lion of the tribe of Judah, also identified as this lamb, a slain lamb, one who was crucified, who rules, but also by his death rescues and redeems God's people. This powerful lion who in the weakness of death defeats death. 
It's a majestic vision, and a key focus in those chapters is this, uh, is this scroll. Uh, it's a very important scroll. It's something that captures John's attention as he looks around and sees everything that's going on. He's fixated on this scroll, and he notices that it's held by the one on the throne. It's got writing on both sides and seven seals sealing it. Uh, now, I'm taking a bit of a risk here because I actually didn't get a chance to hear last week's talk um, uh, before giving this week's talk, but I'm just going to presume that you talked about the way this scroll appears to be the great rescue plan of God, by which he's going to move history forward to its final and glorious and beautiful end of a new creation enjoyed by the people who belong to the Lamb. And John is initially very worried that no one is worthy to actually break these seals. He's looking at this scroll, he realises what it is, how important it is, there's seals on it, and he's like, who is worthy to open them? But then he discovers that there is in fact one who's worthy, the lamb who we are left at the end of chapter 5 thinking, fantastic, let's get these seals undone. Because the next thing in the story surely should be great news. It should be victory and goodness and wonder. Let's get the rescue plan done is kind of where we find ourselves at the end of chapters 4 and 5. Bring on the good stuff. And then we turn the page to chapter 6 and discover that's not at all how God has written his story. What actually happens as the seals are opened couldn't be further from our chapters 4 and 5 expectations. As we heard in the reading, as the seals are undone, one by one, chaos, ruin, destruction and death are unleashed. Rather than rescue and bliss, it's the judgment of God and the awfulness of evil and suffering that dominates the horizon. The message of our chapters today seems to be that before the restoration of all things can come about, evil does its worst. And the particular kind of evil that's on view in our chapters is that which is caused by people and especially that caused by unjust and ungodly empire in opposition toward God. So I'm sorry if you've come wanting a cheery sermon this morning. Uh, because this won't be it, but I think despite that, uh, there is much that can encourage us and, and help us actually to persevere and endure life in this bit of God's story that we find ourselves in. It might actually be a word which helps you go, yeah, actually, that is what life is like for me at the moment, or I can imagine that life might be like that for me at some point in the future. This is God, I think, preparing us and helping us to persevere and endure during this bit of, of, uh, of the story of God's salvation. So let's come to chapter 6 and uh, this vision of the four horsemen. Uh, a particularly memorable and well-known image from the book of Revelation, these, these four horsemen of the apocalypse in, in popular culture and imagination, they're there. We, we kind of might have heard of these things, even if we haven't looked at it in detail. But as we heard in the reading, and as you can see in your Bibles, uh, the opening of the first four seals from the scroll, it unleashes four uh, different coloured horses and their riders onto the, onto the scene. The imagery here is borrowed from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, but put to quite different effect than in his, uh, in his book of prophecy. 
Uh, the horsemen and the horses, they're symbolic and metaphorical in that the heavenly tour guide is not giving John a preview in which one day uh, the people of Ephesus or even Adelaide might be looking out their windows and just see uh, like a, a red horse trotting by and think, oh, Oh no, it's, it's Apocalypse Day. Um, it's, not that kind of, it's not that kind of thing. What we have um, is actually a little bit different than the pop culture image of the four horsemen of the apocalypse just riding over the horizon and um, uh, into some great end times battle. As we read this chapter, I hope it uh, seems clear that what they bring is simply the range of awful experiences inflicted on people from time to time in various parts of the world at various times in history. It's not suggesting a sequence of events where one rider rolls in, does their bit of destruction, and then the next one comes along and, and kind of follows on their coattails. Um, this is part of the limitation of John having to use words to get across what he's talking about, but actually what he's doing is trying to paint a picture for us. Uh, it's depicting an overlapping and repeating set of realities in which these kinds of things happen so long as empire opposed to God goes on, wreaking havoc upon God's good world. So let's think about each of the, um, each of the riders and, and what they represent. So the first rider, with the first rider, we have brutal conquest. His horse is white, which in the book of Revelation symbolizes victory, but it's not like the victory of the lamb or of the people of the lamb. This is victory won through the violence of the bow, we read here. And this is a story that is so ubiquitous across history that we come to sort of just accept these kind of land and power grabs that are on view here as somewhat normal. The extent to which we might feel that a conquest is right and justified, um, sadly in our world, it, it mostly just depends on how good the propaganda is framing that particular event. It just happens all the time. The core reality that this horseman speaks about is brute power that takes what it wants because it can. The second horse is fiery red, uh, which in the, in the world of Revelation, this symbolizes death and bloodshed. He takes away peace and causes the chaos and slaughter of war. That's wonderful, and I think we, we all should be very thankful that the part of the world that we live in is quite peaceful. But there's no escaping, is there, just how the evil of war is such a present reality for so many. Right now we think of Ukraine, but that's just one of many wars which go on all the time all over the world. The third horse brings with him economic ruin. Now often this does follow war. It's one of the terrible consequences of the aftermath of most wars. Uh, economic ruin but, uh, and, and conflict, but it can rear its head in many contexts. And so the cry uh, with this rider is two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine is what we read there. Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages. The implication here is that the ordinary necessities of life, 
wheat and barley for bread and, uh, and just a basic existence gets extremely expensive. Extremely expensive, particularly for the poor who will feel that most acutely, who can't afford them and so will likely starve. While the luxury items like the oil and the wine go untouched. What we're seeing here is a picture of the economic injustice of the rich getting richer at the expense of the poor who suffer famine and ruin. Again, such a, such a, a sadly common story in our world. Then, lastly, uh, the, the, uh, of this um, initial series of, of, um, uh, of seals getting broken, the fourth rider brings with him death, plain and simple. He rides with death and Hades following behind, swallowing people up, we read, by sword, famine and plague and the wild beasts of the earth. It's a confronting and horrific summary of the worst but all too common experiences of life in this fallen world under God's judgment. Our world is broken. There is so much suffering caused by things like war and economic injustice and uh, the collapse of society and plagues and so on. And the message of Revelation here is it's actually just not possible to skip this part of the story. It should be a warning to uh, Christians in particular, but all people really, but to Christians in particular and churches who, as Jesus warned, would say, peace, peace, where there is no peace, that that is not helpful to anyone. It's just avoiding reality. This scripture helps us to be realistic about sin and all the damage it actually causes. People are bad and do bad things to each other. Empires and nations are just big groups of such people and so can do tremendous damage as sin is corporately amplified. There's no need to paper over that or pretend it away. The Bible encourages us not to do that here uh, in this chapter. So uh, this helps us, I think. It helps Christians not to get caught off guard. God's very much in control, but this is also part of his story, part of what happens in his story of rescue in the end, but it's not like that right now. So we don't despair, even though the evil of this world, it can look like it's out of control. It's not. It's very much in, in God's control. Evil and injustice, it will continue, but the hope for us is that one day it will reach its limit God is in fact paying attention. He does have a plan, which we see as the fifth scroll is opened. So uh, come and look with me in verse 9 and 10, uh, because this one is is a real contrast, I think, and that probably stood out to you as we we read it. Verses 9 and 10, uh, the first four scrolls um, are quite different than this one, where we have our attention drawn towards God's faithful people and those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. In verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? These are a group of people who have been on the receiving end of violence and injustice and all of the writers have been symbolizing just how cruel uh, empire opposed to God can be. 
And in the face of that, they have stood for the message that God is king. That the lamb is the true savior, not Caesar or the prime minister or the president or anyone else. And they have paid the ultimate price for that, to standing up for what they know to be true about this world. But notice how two things happen. As they cry out, we're told two things. Firstly, they are told to wait a little longer until the full number join them. That is, evil will continue, it will continue, and it will reach its limit, but then it will go no further. Wait a little longer. But also, notice how the full number of God's people will keep growing until they are all part of the family. There's two promises there. It won't go on forever, and there are more to come and join the family yet. It may not seem like a little while from our perspective, and we may wonder why Jesus is taking so long to return and restore all things, but the assurance here is that he will. And they're assured that they've made the right choice in choosing faithful witness. Uh, They're given white robes, uh, remember, white victory, uh, purity, salvation, not because of their good deeds or even because of their bravery in the face of death, but as we'll see in chapter 7, because they have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. They've entrusted themselves to the Lamb who saves. His blood has rescued them and secured their future. But let's round out this section by looking at the sixth seal as it is opened. We're told uh, as the sixth seal is opened that there's a great earthquake. The sun turns black. I'm looking at verse uh, 12. Uh, The sun turns black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The the, uh, The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Uh, Again, the the language here, as we've been seeing through this whole chapter, is symbolic and metaphorical. The idea here is of an earth-shattering event that just is so tumultuous that it's hard to put it into words. But every so often, these kind of things do happen. And as they do, they wake us up, they wake us all up to how not in control we are in the face of of the chaos that can come into this world. A devastating earthquake, like a volcanic eruption, a global pandemic that puts to rest any pretense that we have tamed nature by our science, learning, whatever it is. There are certain things that happen in this world, uh, particularly those things which are an expression of God's judgment in some way that just silence our pretense or our pride that we might actually be in control. They teach us that we're not. These are times that for the rich and powerful can come as a real shock, a real surprise to people who are used to thinking that they are in control. They say what happens and usually it does. But in verse 15, these are the very ones who are reduced to hiding in caves in the face of God's judgment. We see in verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Before we have the second half of our reading, and I make some much briefer comments on that, let me just try and summarize chapter six for us. The path or journey that leads towards the victory of the Lamb and the new creation that he's leading his people into is going to be very, very hard. Victory is guaranteed for all those who are faithful, but evil in all its various forms is still going to do its worst. It's going to be hard to remain faithful. But the call is to persevere in hope and in the knowledge that God will in a little while and when the full number are brought into the family will judge and remove all that is wrong with this world. Okay, let's hear chapter 7 and, um, and then some concluding remarks. Is that easy again? Thank you. So the next reading is Revelation 7 verse 1 till um, Revelation 8 verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of um, Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding, <clears throat> and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come uh, out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. 
for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Excellent. Thank you. So we've had the sixth seal opened. We're waiting for the the seventh, but chapter seven uh, forces us to keep waiting uh, through an interlude involving this sealing of a different kind. Uh, So you can, uh, I guess the idea here is you you can use a seal to seal up a letter and make it clear when it's been tampered with, like a wax seal that gets broken when you open it. Um, But seals can also be used to declare ownership of something, a bit like a stamp or a a sticker that you might put on your lunchbox or something like that. You can use a seal to actually mark something out as yours. And that is the sense that sealing is being done in this chapter. Uh, Here in chapter 7, we read about all of God's people being marked by this angel who has the seal of the living God to stamp them with. This interlude um, is quite long, isn't it, really? Like, it's, it's a long wait that we get forced to, to make before we see seal seven being opened. Um, but it's an important interlude because in it, it unveils what is lying ahead of all of the evil and suffering that we've just spoken about from chapter six. So let's just briefly dig into it. First, we have in verse four, uh, chapter seven, verse four, John saying, I heard, and then a bunch of things that he heard. And then in verse nine, If you jump down to verse 9, he says, After this, I looked. And uh, for those who were here last week, may remember a similar pattern uh, in what we saw in chapters 4 and 5. John hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he sees a slain lamb. It's the same kind of pattern, hearing and then seeing. What John hears is that many people from the tribes of Israel are sealed. 12 times 12,000. 12,000, that's right, yeah, 12 times 12,000, a very big number, okay? Uh, And has, again, symbolic rather than literal value. The whole of God's people is symbolized by 12. That's clear enough, Um, just like the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament story. And multiplying that by 12,000 has the effect of saying to anyone who's actually trying to number them, good luck to you. You're going to be here for a while. Two interesting things about the list. Uh, First is that Judah comes first ahead of Reuben, who is the firstborn uh, of the children of Israel. The obvious reason for that would be to highlight that Jesus, the Messiah, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I think that one's quite straightforward. Uh, Those of you who are into Bible trivia will notice that there's one missing, though. Dan is missing. Uh, From what I can tell, this is most likely because in Jewish thought at the time, the Antichrist was meant to come from the tribe of Dan. I didn't know this before I was reading up on this chapter, but um, I think that's the best explanation I could find about why Dan's missing there. And because Dan's missing, Manasseh is named as one of the tribes, even though he's a son of Joseph. Presumably that's just to keep the 12 thing working after you've dropped Dan out of the list. All right, so quirky details, in case that was annoying anyone, that's kind of what's going on there. Um, But they are just details. The vibe is very clear. All of God's people are sealed. But who are God's people? If the chapter stopped here, uh, just with the list of the tribes, we might be thinking it's just the Jewish people of God, the Jewish nation, the Old Testament people of God, or something like that. But take a look at what happens in verse 9 as John looks. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, 
from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here we have our suspicion that the 144,000 is symbolic, it's confirmed. When he looks, he realizes the number is so great, it can't be counted. Okay, so we're not looking for, you know, 139,999 to click over. Um, We're just, it's a huge number that no one can count. And importantly, the fullness of the tribes, it actually includes those from all the nations who have been grafted in and become part of God's people through their trust in the Messiah. This is a word and a vision which is meant to help those of us who have, well, all of life ahead of us in which we must keep going. It helps us to see who our true family is and what our destination will be. By being faithful to Jesus now, we may uh, indeed find ourselves mistreated, rejected, ridiculed, excluded, even at the extreme end of things, killed. We may find that we are truly aliens and strangers in this world. But if we belong to Jesus, then we also belong to this great victorious crowd of all the nations. And that is an encouragement towards faithful witness no matter what it might cost us. You know that word martyr, uh, which we use to speak of someone who has given up their life uh, for standing uh, firm in their their trust of Jesus and refusing to back down? That word in its original context and also in the book here simply means witness. The idea is that witness at its worst can lead to martyrdom. Um, But the call to be a faithful witness is the call that belongs to all Christian believers. This encouragement towards faithful witness, no matter what it might cost us, uh, is helped by this encouragement to look forward with great expectation of what we will one day enjoy. Verse 15 uh, puts this in in great uh, colour. They are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. This is what we're looking forward to. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will uh, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no promise that life now will be easy. Because of evil in the world, it almost certainly will be very difficult. There will be temptation to not be faithful and to capitulate to the world, to buy into the way of evil, empire, power, violence, the culture of death that surrounds us. But despite any harm or hardship now, the promise of God is that in the final judgment, no harm comes on us because we've washed our robes white in the blood of the lamb so the way I want to finish is just by letting that note of comfort ring in our ears from verse 17 the lamb will be our shepherd leading us to springs of living water and our God will wipe away every tear from our eyes that is a tremendously helpful insight in how we are to picture and understand our God who he is and what he's like. 
We can sometimes be tempted to think of God as maybe stern or just a being with raw power, even some kind of heavenly judge or administrator. But what I want us to have is this verse 17 picture ringing in our ears and before us today. It shows us that our God is first and foremost merciful. Yes, he is just and will judge. He'll put an end to evil and to evil people even. But he does that because he is driven by his mercy. And his mercy is seen in this very tender image of the God, the God of the whole universe, who gets up from his throne, stoops forward and wipes the tear from the eyes of his people. He's not indifferent to the ruin of the horseman. His heart breaks at how awful evil is. He cares which is a tremendous encouragement to keep going and as we do to be praying and calling upon our merciful Heavenly Father. The last thing we read was about the seventh seal opened and then silence for half an hour. Uh, That was the thing we were kind of paused to, to wait for. And actually, it just leads into another cycle of seven. So I'm not going to say much more about that. It actually launches us into next week and I'm not going to steal any thunder from the next person. Um, But for now, I do think it would be a very good thing to pray uh, to our our merciful Heavenly Father, and then uh, we'll keep going with what's next. Uh, So will you join me in prayer? Our loving and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the assurance and the confidence that comes from uh, knowing your care for us, your care for the world, and your hate for all that has broken your good world and your good creation. Um, but we also thank you for this, this picture which is um, realistic and helpful to us as, um, as it assures us that even though there is so much evil and wrong with this world, uh, you are still in control. So help us as we face whatever might come at, come at us during our lives to remain faithful to Jesus, to be faithful in our witness, to persevere Uh, And and because of the power of Jesus' blood to be standing there with that great crowd on the last day. Uh, We pray that you'd also use us as witnesses to others. As we stand firm in Jesus, may that be noticed by those around us, particularly those we care about who don't yet trust Jesus. May they see the truth about him and be captured by this vision of what can lie ahead for all people of, of all nations Um, as you invite them to join in that great heavenly crowd. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.